in our tour through the Bible this morning, going over another short book, which means we can cover pretty much all the content in the book. But that also means that I'm getting a little bit closer than our like 10,000 foot survey. We're going down deeper, which means I'm going to have a lot more content to go over. So I'm going to go ahead and dive right in and get started. Uh, let's go ahead and begin with prayer, and then I will get into our content. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for all of your word, not just the parts that we know well, but every single book, every single word, every single topic. And we are grateful that you've given all of it to us. I pray this morning you would help us to understand what we read and that it would sink into our hearts and that what we uh, read and understand today would help us understand the rest of the Bible and the rest of the world. And uh, ask that your spirit would be at work in us, illuminating this word and applying it to our hearts. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, in our world today, we can see a lot of balances and a lot of extremes. You see both of those in tandem throughout the world. And both of them can be good, depending on the situation. It's good to have a balanced diet. It's good to eat a lot of different kinds of food so you don't overload on one thing and make your body uh, have more of it than it needs. It's good to have an extreme with water temperature. It's much better to have a, an ice-cold glass of water than something that's lukewarm. Or if you're making tea or coffee, lukewarm water is not going to cut it. You need something that is very hot. And you'll find the authors of Scripture using the same things. They will often hold things in balance, depending on the situation, or they will use an extreme to accomplish their meaning. And as we look at the book of Zephaniah this morning, we will find him overwhelmingly using extremes to accomplish his message. Zephaniah does not hold much in balance. He is an author of extremes. His message is dire and deadly, and so half measures will not do as he communicates it. We're going to see some blunt descriptions of sin and judgment, and if you find yourself uncomfortable as you read it, you're reading it correctly. Zephaniah wants us to see the seriousness of sin, so he does not pull punches as he talks about it. But there are two sides to extremes. Even as Zephaniah describes sin and judgment in extreme terms, he also shows the opposite end of the spectrum as he talks about God's love and salvation. If something is extremely in one direction, there's got to be something on the other side to balance it out, almost like the foundation for a building. Those are both extremes. And these extremes of God's, sin, God's judgment on sin and his love and salvation, those are foils for each other. They accentuate and amplify the extent of each other. As deep as God's judgment is against sin, God's salvation is deeper. As ugly as our sin is, God's love is greater and more beautiful. And so seeing one will help us see the depth of the other. It's kind of like when you take a drink of cold water. It's really refreshing. But if you just finish chewing mint gum or eating a peppermint candy and your mouth is, is full of that peppermint taste, and then you take a drink of cold water... It's like your mouth is electrified. It's on fire. It's, it's colder than cold because the mint is amplifying the coldness of the water. And Zephaniah uses extremes like that to amplify his message. And we'll see these extremes as we walk through the content of the book. Uh, we're going to start with the background, looking at the author, the date, and the setting of the book. 
And then we'll take a little bit of time to describe the major theme of Zephaniah, which is the day of the Lord. Finally, we'll move on to uh, trace that theme throughout the outline of the book, where we'll get to spend a lot of time in the actual verses and chapters in Zephaniah. But let's start with the background. Like all of the minor prophets, this book bears the name of its author. Zephaniah wrote this book. The name Zephaniah means the Lord hides. And though there are a few other Zephaniahs who are mentioned in Scripture, uh, this is not the same one. This is the only information that we know about this Zephaniah is the biographical information he gives us in his prophecy. And in chapter 1, verse 1, he says, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, beginning with the genealogy is fairly out of place for the prophets. This is not something that the prophets normally do. So it's clear that Zephaniah is drawing attention to something important about his lineage. His father, grandfather, and great-grandfather are relatively unknown. But the final name in the list tips the scales. Zephaniah is a direct descendant of Hezekiah, king of Judah. He is a royal prophet, not a king himself, but part of the royal lineage. And so his words have weight. Linking himself to Hezekiah also makes a spiritual statement about himself. Because Hezekiah was a godly ruler who turned to God in times of turmoil. 2 Kings 18 tells us that Hezekiah trusted God unlike any king before him or after him in Judah. And we do see failures during his rule, but his reign serves as one of the highest points in the history of Judah, in the history of that kingdom. Zephaniah comes from his line. He is descended from a great and godly king, and so his words are important. They have weight, partially due to his royal blood, but partially due to the spiritual legacy that his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah left him. The only other information we can really glean about Zephaniah is that he knew God's law, especially Deuteronomy. As with many other prophets, Zephaniah does not just generally accuse Israel of sin, but rather specifically walks through commands and judgments and promises from Scripture. These commands that call the nation to obey and shows them what will happen if they do not. Zephaniah knows that in Deuteronomy, God called the nation to hear and obey. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. Verse 12 continues, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the, to the test. Zephaniah knew this scripture. He knew that God had called the nation to hear God, to remember God, to fear God. Israel was specifically commanded to avoid becoming like the nations around them, becoming like them in worshiping worthless gods. 
And should they disobey, God's judgment was coming. Zephaniah's understanding and application of Deuteronomy is especially important given his context during the reign of Josiah. And this is where we can see the date for the book of Zephaniah. In chapter 1, verse 1, he mentions that this is written and given during the reign of Josiah the king. Josiah reigned in the time of the divided kingdom, in the southern kingdom of Judah, after Israel had already gone into exile into Assyria. He reigned from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C. And Zephaniah also mentions Josiah's father, Ammon. And so you can see that he's beginning to contrast his own lineage with the lineage of Josiah. Both of them were descended from Hezekiah, but Josiah's father, Ammon, and his grandfather, Manasseh, painted a very different picture of Josiah's lineage. If Hezekiah's reign was one of the high points of Judah, Manasseh and Ammon's reign were some of the lowest. 2 Kings 21 verse 2 says that Manasseh did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And you can hear, even in that brief description, many of the things from Deuteronomy already ticked off the list that Manasseh had disobeyed on. And he even added the fact that he burnt one of his own sons on an altar to a false god, something that was specifically condemned in Leviticus 18.21. Another son who escaped that sacrifice and reigned after Manasseh, which was Ammon, followed in his father's footsteps and continued to lead the nation into sin. And this was the state of the nation that Josiah found himself in when he himself came to power. Zephaniah also would have faced the state of this nation as he wrote during Josiah's reign. And Zephaniah is writing to the entire nation, but as he mentions King Josiah in the introduction, you can hear him appealing directly to the king as he writes. From one member of the royal family to another... Zephaniah speaks a stark message to King Josiah and to the nation as a whole, describing the judgment that will come upon them for their indulgence in gross sin under Manasseh and Ammon. Zephaniah calls Josiah to lead the nation into repentance, and then he calls the nation to follow their king in turning back to the Lord. We don't know exactly when, during Josiah's reign, Zephaniah prophesied, But we do know that in the midst of his reign, Josiah did lead the nation into a reformation and repentance that had never before been seen in Judah. 2 Kings 22 shows that in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, Hilkiah the high priest found the book of the law, which was the book of Deuteronomy. They found the book of Deuteronomy. And Josiah responded in grief and sorrow that they had literally lost God's words to them. And then he spent the majority of the rest of his reign moving the nation of Judah into obedience to that law. Now, it could be that Josiah prophesied before the finding of the law and spoke to a nation that was still indulging in this idolatry and disobedience. But it could also be that once Deuteronomy was found, Zephaniah, who was in the royal family and would have had a greater access to it, would have read it and understand, understood the implications for the nation. And he then wrote this prophecy as a condemnation to the nation and a call to them to repent 
in accordance with what was written there. And if this was the case, he was not alone in doing so. For the prophetess Huldah spoke a nearly identical message to Josiah after the finding of the law in 2 Kings 22. When Josiah sends a message to her to inquire of the Lord about this great and tragic event of finding the lost book of Deuteronomy, this prophetess says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring a disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. We'll see in a few minutes how Zephaniah's message follows along this same train of thought as Huldah. And while his message could have occurred any time during Josiah's reign, I believe that it's probable that he was aware of the finding of the law, and that he was as distraught as Josiah and Huldah at the gross state of idolatry and sin in Judah. They saw the writing on the wall or in this case, the writing in the scroll. Judah had passed the point of no return, and judgment was coming. So that is the background. Zephaniah, who is a prophet of royal descent, writes to a nation reeling from the discovery of Deuteronomy, and he tells them to to buckle up for judgment. But before we get into the content of that judgment, I'd like to pause and focus on the main trope that Zephaniah uses to describe that coming judgment. And that is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. Now this is a phrase that is used to describe a coming time of God's action, specifically in judgment. It is the day of the Lord because it is the day that God stepped in and acted according to what he had promised, executing justice, accomplishing righteousness, and working his will. It is the day of the Lord because it is the Lord's day to do his plan. It is not a turn of phrase that's unique to Zephaniah, as it occurs in Isaiah and Joel and Amos, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Malachi. But while it's not unique to Zephaniah, it's perhaps most closely linked to him because of how much he uses uses this phrase. In three short chapters, the word day is used 21 times in reference to the day of the Lord, and there are at least five other references using words like at that time or then, which refer to the same time period. Time is all through this book, referring to the day of the Lord. And this is one of the ways that Zephaniah uses extremes. He does not just speak about judgment. He does not speak about discipline or slap on the wrist. He prophesies about the day of the Lord, the epitome of God's judgment. It is the full-fledged outpouring of God's wrath against sin and disobedience. And it is the unleashing of all of the curses that are stored up for Israel in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And the first thing to recognize about the day of the Lord is that extreme nature of judgment. But the second thing is to recognize how this judgment is applied. In Zephaniah, as with the other prophets, the judgment that is poured out in the day of the Lord has both a near-referent and a far referent. Aspects of Zephaniah's prophecy were were fulfilled within a few years of his writing, but other aspects are yet to come, even today. And we describe this as a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment because some aspects are near to the original audience in time and geography, and others are far 
They were far away in time, far away in the nature of how the judgment is going to be fulfilled. And these near and far reference are a bit like looking at a mountain range. When you're driving on I-70 towards Colorado, uh, at some point in western Kansas, you'd finally see something, and you see the beginning of the Rocky Mountains. You see the line of mountains in front of you. And at first, it seems like there is just one line of mountains that's all equally far away from you. It looks like it's just one long mountain stretching from north to south. But as you get closer, you see that some of these mountains are closer than others. And you begin to even go through the foothills and the first few uh, mountains of the, that the roads go through. And you realize that the rest of the mountains are far off. Some of them are still hundreds of miles away, even as you begin to go through the mountain range. <coughs> And so what looked like one singular thing becomes very deep. And the day of the Lord is similar. The judgment is described together. These near references and the far references are described together. But upon closer inspection of the text and upon the history of Israel, we can parse out the elements that were near and the elements that were far. The near reference of the judgment of the day of the Lord was the Babylonian captivity. And this was the specific means of God's judgment upon the people of Judah who had rebelled against him. That was to bring Babylon to conquer them. This near fulfillment of the day of the Lord is a true fulfillment, but it's not the entire context. It will be terrible. It, it was deserved and extensive upon the nation of Judah, but it also wasn't the end of God's judgment. The far reference of the day of the Lord is still to come. Zephaniah makes statements regarding God sweeping away the entire earth, sweeping away people and animals, everything, not just sinful Judah, but everything on earth in the judgment of his wrath. And while we can look back and see much of Zephaniah truly fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity, we don't see the entire world being consumed with fire. That has not happened yet. Some of the messages of the far reference of the day of the Lord, are references to the judgment that God will pour out on the world at the end of time. When he brings first the tremendous tribulation on the earth for seven years and then meets out judgment on the living and the dead, then consumes the world with fire and brings his people into the new heavens and the new earth. Now there's one more aspect to the day of the Lord and what it means for the people of Judah and for us today. And it's integral to the message of the book of Zephaniah and to our lives today. But I prefer to get to that aspect by walking through the book first. I don't want to give away the ending of Zephaniah, but we'll get there in just a few minutes. This way we can see the context of Zephaniah's prophecy and get the full weight of the extremes that he holds against each other as he describes the day of the Lord. So with that in mind, now that we've looked at the background, as we've looked at the day of the Lord, Let's walk through the outline of the book to see the content that Zephaniah prophesies. Each point in this outline has to do with judgment. In the beginning, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, we see the introduction of judgment. And this includes Zephaniah's genealogy and dating from verse 1, but it also includes the introduction of the content of his message in verses 2 through 6. The prophet does not mince words as he swiftly describes the utter destruction that will come from God's judgment. And in words reminiscent of the flood, he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. 
I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. A worldwide, all-encompassing judgment was coming. And it was coming because of the wicked on the earth. And who were the wicked? Well, verses 4 through 6 tell us. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. You can hear the mentions of idolatry here. And the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. And the wicked who are condemned by Zephaniah are the people living in Judah, specifically the people living in Jerusalem, the capital city, the place of the temple that was supposed to represent his holiness. The prophet condemns the idolatry and hypocrisy of the people who claim to follow God in one breath and yet bow down and worship idols in the next breath. They have repented in a sense, but not by turning to God, instead by turning away from God to idols. This was the opposite of what God had commanded in Deuteronomy, and so judgment would follow. We find the next step in the outline in verses 7 through 18, where Zephaniah describes the means of this judgment, how he will carry it out. And the means of the judgment is the day of the Lord. It is clear that this is no laughing matter. Verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. God prepares a sacrifice, showing perhaps that Israel's sacrifices were corrupt and that God was taking things into his own hands, or perhaps portraying sinful Israel as what was going to be sacrificed. Not as a pure sacrifice, but to put them to death. On this day of sacrifice... The day of the Lord, God would punish those in foreign clothes, meaning those who had aligned themselves with the idolatry of the foreign nations around them. Verse 9 refers to those who leap over thresholds, which referred to an idolatrous practice of the surrounding nations. Verses 10 through 11 show more of the near application of this judgment. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traitors are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. Now the fish gate, the second quarter, the mortar, and the hills are all references to locations in the north part of Jerusalem. And why would they be in anguish? Well, because God's means of judgment is Babylon, who would come from the north, and would first destroy these areas in Jerusalem as they entered into the city. In verse 12, Jerusalem is condemned for their complacency. It says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. These men have not listened to Moses' words, To hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. They did not heed the command, do not put the Lord your God to the test. They forgot God, just like the nation forgot the book of the law. And now the consequences were coming. Zephaniah gives the most detailed description of the day of the Lord in verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. A mighty man cry, cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress 
and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. And you can clearly see that there are references to the near fulfillment of the day of the Lord as this day comes upon Judah and comes upon Jerusalem in the invasion of Babylon. But verses 17 and 18 contain more. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of the inhabitants of the earth. The day of the Lord is terrible. Seen first in the Babylonian captivity, it will be seen fully in the final day when God punishes the sin, not just of Judah, but of every person from every nation, from every time. Everyone aligned against God. Even the earth itself shall be destroyed. This is the day of the Lord. Now up through this point, Zephaniah has been speaking God's words, saying things like, I will do this, I see this, I say this. But in chapter 2, he begins speaking some of his own words. And in verses 1 through 3, we see the next step in the outline, which is the response to judgment. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the response to judgment. And Zephaniah's response to God's judgment is to repent. He says, gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before <clears throat> there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. <clears throat> Zephaniah says, judgment is coming. Nothing is going to turn that away. <coughs> this, this call to repentance is not a call to try and save Judah. That's already passed. That ship has sailed. And even the wholehearted reformation and repentance of the nation under Josiah would not bring the nation back uh, out of this judgment. But Zephaniah calls for individuals within the nation to repent themselves to preserve their own souls in the midst of the judgment of the nation. There are many prophets who were examples of people who lived this out. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they all endured this day of the Lord in the Babylonian captivity and yet kept themselves pure and trusted in God, repenting of their sin. And this is something that the prophetess Holda, prophetess Holda uh, in the section after what I read before, she said this to Josiah as well in 2 Kings 22. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. And Zephaniah now offers the same call to everyone else in the nation. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. 
Do justice and obey his commands. Perhaps you may find salvation in the midst of the judgment of the nation. The people of Judah still have the opportunity to turn to the Lord and be saved. They need only trust in God, turn from their sin, and walk in obedient faith. Even if they did, and many seem to do so in Josiah's reforms, judgment still came. And it's a bit like a child who has been caught in a lie, who faces discipline for it. If that child turns and repents and confesses their sin and says, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done this, they still need to do that. They need to do that for their own sake. But they're not going to get out of discipline. They're still going to face that discipline for their good. Next, in verses 4 through 15 in chapter 2, Zephaniah moves to the first of two applications of judgment. And this point in chapter 2, verses 4 through 15, would be called the application of judgment to the nations. Application of judgment to the nations. God has condemned Israel for becoming like the nations in their idolatry and sacrificing to Baal, to Milcom, the, the gods of the stars, the gods of the people who are around him that are explicitly condemned in Deuteronomy. God has condemned Judah for that, but now he condemns the nations themselves and shows how the day of the Lord will come upon them. Throughout these verses, Zephaniah hones in on the major cities of the nations to represent the nations as a whole. He begins in verses 4 through 7 by mentioning Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron, which were major cities of the Philistines. These would be desolated, deserted, destroyed, both for their own disobedience and for the role they played in oppressing Israel and inviting them to join in idolatry. Those who curse Israel would be cursed, according to the Abrahamic covenant. Because of their sin, Philistia would experience the judgment of the day of the Lord. But verses 6 and 7, within this judgment, hint at something unexpected. It says, And you, O seacoast, which was the land of the Philistines, you shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. And Zephaniah mentions the remnant of the house of Judah, indicating that there will be some who turn at the invitation given a few verses before. God will remember this remnant, being mindful of them and tending them like a flock in the land, previously owned by their enemies. If you remember back to Zephaniah's name, the Lord hides, you hear maybe a hint of God hiding a remnant in the midst of this sinful nation. Verses 8 through 11 in chapter 2 condemn Moab and Ammon, which were twin nations born from the descendants of Lot's daughters, born in sin after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And because these nations have opposed Judah in their pride and arrogance, God will make them like those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy them utterly. Again, God mentions the remnant of his people in verse 9, linking his judgment with the restoration of a remnant who turned back to him. He's hinting at something that we'll see later. Verse 12 mentions Cush, which is likely a reference to an Egyptian or an Ethiopian power, and mentions the judgment coming upon them. And then verses 13 through 15 mention the coming judgment on Assyria, who had taken Israel, the northern kingdom, into captivity. And then comes chapter 3, 
following right on the heels of this application of judgment to the nations. And while we have a chapter division with a heading that separates these two words, Zephaniah's original message would have come on a scroll or in a speech. And there wouldn't have been a division. It would have just been the next thing they saw or the next thing they read. It would have continued the thought of the prior paragraph, proclaiming judgment on the nations around Israel, around Judah. (coughs) And so as you begin to read chapter 3, put yourself in the, the shoes of Judah as they were listening for, okay, we got Philistia, we got Moab, we got Ammon, we have Cush, Assyria. Which nation is next? Which nation will face judgment? And in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. And Zephaniah still hasn't named the nation he's prophesying against, but there are some hints. This nation has rejected their God, the one true God, and they are filled with corrupt rulers, priests, and prophets. And it's beginning to sound hauntingly familiar. But the crushing blow comes in verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. Zephaniah says the Lord himself is in this nation. And it is none other than Judah. He is speaking about the city of Jerusalem where God said his presence would dwell. But in describing her this way, without a break from the other nations, God shows that they have become nothing more than one of the pagan nations around them. They have aligned themselves with these nations in idolatry, and now they will align themselves with these nations in judgment. The the next stage of this outline with these verses is chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And parallel to the prior section, which was an application of judgment to the nations, These verses contain an application of judgment to Judah. God is incredulous at at Judah's unfaithfulness in verse 7. He says, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. God offered Judah an opportunity He offered them opportunity after opportunity to turn back to him. They had hundreds of years and dozens of kings to return and follow, but instead they reversed course, neglecting the law to the point of losing it, increasing their worship, but not to God, to idols. They ran away from God. And God tells them what they should do now in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. For the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all of my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Judgment is coming, and all they can do is wait. God has determined his course of action, and nothing Judah does will change it. The humble are still called to repent. But once they have, all they can do is stop and wait. 
As I said, Zephaniah is a book of extremes. And when your subject matter is the day of the Lord, nothing else is sufficient. But we have not seen the full extent of the extremes of Zephaniah. The faithful of Judah are called to wait for the judgment in verse 8. But as they do, their patience will be rewarded with something else, which we will see in the final two sections of the book. First, in verses 9 through 13 of chapter 3, Zephaniah gives us the outcome of judgment. And that outcome is salvation. Verse 9 says, For at that time, at the time that they were waiting for, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. What an incredible turn. At, the, at that time, meaning at the day of the Lord, this time of judgment, God says he will save people from the nations. He changes their speech so they can call on the name of the Lord. No longer will they speak in lies and impure speech and threats. Now they speak words of faith. The day of the Lord means salvation from the nations. And this can only point forward to Jesus whose death created a way for people to be saved from every nation, from every tribe and every tongue. And as Jesus endured judgment for the sins of many, he was experiencing the day of the Lord himself. But this judgment led to the salvation of many. Verses 11 through 13 apply this salvation to Judah as well as the other nations. He says, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid." And amazingly, God says that he will use the judgment that he pours out upon them to bring about their salvation. He does this by winnowing them, by destroying the sinful, those who did not repent when God called them to, and by preserving the righteous, by preserving those who sought the Lord, who sought humility, who sought righteousness. God purifies the nation by removing idolaters and leaving only the faithful. And this shows the reason for God's judgment. Yes, his righteousness expresses itself in wrath and judgment against sin, but the goal is to purify a people for himself. God is not a helicopter judge who is just hovering over you waiting for you to mess up so he can punish you. Rather, he is a God of salvation who righteously disciplines those he loves in order to purify them. And ultimately, salvation for the people of Judah comes through faith in Jesus Christ as well, just like it comes to the nations. What a glorious turn. And if the book of Zephaniah ended at verse 13, it would be complete. You would see the judgment upon sin and the salvation to the nations, and you would say, wow, this is amazing. But there's still a few more verses. And what we find in verses 14 through 20 is even more amazing. Because in these verses, we see God's heart for judgment. Verses 14 through 20 is God's heart in judgment. And that is his love for his people. 
I'm going to read these verses a little bit of an extended section. <coughs> Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, on the day of the Lord, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What a glorious conclusion. The day of the Lord has turned from judgment to salvation, from destruction to gathering together, from captivity to restoration. And you can hear the heart that God has for his people. He does not judge to judge. He judges to love. He purifies them from sin so he can come and dwell among them. And now his presence doesn't mean destruction. It means salvation because he is purifying them. He is coming to dwell among them as he did when Jesus came and dwelt among us. As the Spirit of God dwells among us today. And as God will come back to dwell amongst us in the future. Verse 17 is one of the most intimate expressions of God's heart toward us in all of Scripture. It says, God is in our midst. He rejoices over us with gladness. He quiets us with his love. He exults over us with singing. Think about that. God rejoices over you. God exults over you. He sings about you. He finds his joy in you. After an entire book focused on the depths of sin, these words seem unbelievable. They would have seemed unbelievable to the audience in Judah, and perhaps they seem unbelievable to you today, considering the depths of your own sin. But through God's salvation-bringing judgment, it's not only possible, it is true. It is true that God believes that about you and thinks that about you. And through God's judgment on Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father, and he loves us. He rejoices over us. He sings about us. The message of Zephaniah can be summed up in two words, repent and rejoice. The people in the reign of Josiah were called to this response, to repent of their sin and to rejoice in God's plan to save. And we must respond in the same way. And gloriously, we have the opportunity to obey both of those commands in about 15 minutes. As we sit under the preaching of God's word, God's Spirit will be active to convict people in our congregation of sin. As you feel conviction, repent. Obey the message of Zephaniah. And in our singing, we get to express our gratitude, our joy, our love for God. And so as you sing, rejoice. 
and join in the song that God is already singing, a song of joy and gladness and love. Repent and rejoice. That's Zephaniah. You are dismissed.